Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I'm Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt healthcare attorney, Dara Coleman. Dara, good to be with you again. Great to see you, Heather. Well, the news about COVID now is the vaccine. What are your clients asking you? A couple of different things. Um, A lot of folks are asking, do you trust the vaccine? Mm. And of course, my thought is yes, of course I'm going to trust the vaccine. And when it's my turn, I would like to have it. Another question people are asking is, can employers require their employees to have the vaccine? And the most lawyerly answer I can give them is, it depends. (laughs) Um, And a lot of that is dependent upon the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Healthcare clients um, are the most likely who are eligible to require it. Um, but there may be an exception um, to the ability to require it. So employers are curious about whether that's a good idea, and um, that leads to more detailed conversations. But folks are really interested in it, particularly since the FDA gave the um, Pfizer um, vaccine a positive um, vote this week. Right. Well, there's lots to talk about, and we are very honored today to have the South Carolina epidemiologist, Dr. Linda Bell with DHEC with us after this break to talk about COVID. This will be her second time with us, so we will hear how we've done since we spoke last. So stay with us for Taking the Pulse. Welcome back, everyone, to Taking the Pulse. Dara and I are most honored today to have Dr. Linda Bell, South Carolina's epidemiologist with the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control with us today. Dr. Bell graciously joined us, I guess that was back in May, Uh, you know, right when we were sort of felt like we were in the thick of it and it might be easing. Um, And we had a good discussion then. Dr. Bell, welcome back today, several months later. Uh, Can you give us an overview uh, from your opinion on how we're doing uh, in this race to stay strong and be safe? Well, as as far as, uh, excuse me, how we're doing, um, we we came from a period of just a little over a month ago when we were actually uh, in a situation where a majority of our counties were showing a downward trajectory. And, um, and I, I, you know, I wish I could report on the continued positive news, but we had uh, realized a kind of a plateau in the state between the period of about September to mid-October, but our, our cases began creeping up a bit starting in, in mid-October. And, and so very unfortunately, as we moved into the period just before the Thanksgiving holiday, we were actually at a point where our cases were really starting to increase and in some areas in the state somewhat significantly. So um, we went into the Thanksgiving holiday at a higher rate of cases. And so where we are now is that uh, the majority of our counties are actually now in an upward trajectory. We are over the last few days seeing the the worst uh, in terms of number of cases, number of deaths than we have seen since the beginning of the pandemic in South Carolina. Why do you think that is? Well, there are a number of contributors, but but the main one is um, a a lack of prevention practices in our communities. I'm sure many people are familiar with the fact that that the CDC advised against travel for the Thanksgiving holidays and really cautioned people about the, um, the need for, for prevention, even within our homes. And so the, the number of things that have been driving this is social gatherings, um, people uh, getting somewhat fatigued of, you know, having to practice prevention routinely. So the use of masks 
is a, is a very important factor that not everyone is practicing. But, um, you know, a lack, I think, of appreciation, it's not just those large group settings, but it's also these small groups. We see um, a great deal of transmission within household settings. So there are, are multiple contributors. And then as disease activity increases in the community, that increases the risk of people being exposed. And so uh, we, we need to do more testing. We need people to be aware of the fact that um, they can be carrying and spreading the virus without having any symptoms. So, uh, you know, there, there are multiple drivers, but a, a lack of prevention efforts is the main one. As we are getting ready to go into another holiday season, Dr. Bell, do we have growing concerns about this surge continuing to escalate since these warnings appear to have not been heeded immediately prior to the Thanksgiving holiday? Yes, I'm afraid that is a, a huge concern among public health officials, among our healthcare providers, that the capacity in our hospitals is a concern. And so uh, what we've seen here in the state from the pandemic following every holiday in the summer, starting with, um, I guess, Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day, we saw those surges. And then Thanksgiving, the, the worst surge that we've ever experienced. Um, and so the concern is that over the holidays when people are, um, you know, on break, that they may be socializing more. And we will be going into yet another holiday from the, the highest rates of disease that we've seen. So it, it is a, is a tremendous concern, but it's, um, if we can look at it as an opportunity to prevent a, you know, another surge after another holiday, if we pay careful attention to, to what is within our means to control, then um, we, can, we could be optimistic that uh, with the knowledge that we can change that. That doesn't have to happen again. Are, are we continuing to see outbreaks, um, any, anything from them like geography, city versus rural, or demographically? Uh, we talked about that originally, but is, or is it just widespread now? Well, and, and when we say the, the name, so the word outbreak to me might mean something different. Oh, sorry, surge. How about a surge? <laughs> um, but, but to me, outbreak means an example of uh, identified ongoing transmission in a particular setting. And so the example of that uh, would be the, the major place that we see transmission is within individual households. There's about a 50% chance, 50% transmission within households. So the, the majority of, and we call them clusters, the majority of clusters of cases that we see are in households. So that's a big message about what we can prevent. But, um, you know, clusters and outbreaks in long-term care facilities and, you know, uh, facilities that have congregate settings, especially for older or, or disabled individuals, are settings where we do see clusters and evidence of transmission within those settings. So I, I would call those outbreaks. Um, but other information that we're collecting that I know a lot of people are interested in is when we see reports of cases from students or staff in schools. And we do track that, but it doesn't mean that that's evidence of transmission within schools. It just means that we have people who attend schools and actually many of these cases are people who are virtual, but it doesn't mean that they were exposed in the school setting. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those cases are attributed to community transmission. And then for the second part of your question, yes, we are seeing uh, higher rates geographically and, um, and then there are certain um, 
communities that um, are at higher risk for higher rates of disease, higher rates of death. And, and we look at these as areas in the state that have um, a high social vulnerability index. These are areas where they have limited access to care, higher proportions of, of people who have existing medical conditions that put them at increased risk for hospitalization. They work in settings where they're at increased risk for exposure. And so, um, you know, all of those are findings. Clusters within certain settings, geographic distribution, occupational risk, and community risk when there is a limited access to care. And, and we're trying to address that by bringing testing, for example, to those communities to do a better job finding those cases. Where have you seen the largest spike geographically in the state? So, and, and I encourage people to visit our website because this gets updated frequently. And in fact, it can, it can change from one week to the next. I would say that the upstate is a particular area of um, you know, ongoing transmission. Uh, I, I want people to pay attention to when they look at population centers, that there's a difference between individual numbers of cases simply because more people live there. But when you look at case rates, that's the best way to compare across populations. And so we do see uh, higher case rates in some of our urban areas, but uh, when you look at the maps on, on our DHEC website, um, that that varies in, um, but I would say uh, our Midlands, the upstate, uh, the Charleston area, uh, but, but I would highlight now that there are only six counties of the 46 in South Carolina that are not considered to be high transmission area. So it's pretty much stable. Wow. And the graphs are very useful on the DHEC website. Those are very helpful um, graphic um, tools for, for, even, for lay people like us who are not epidemiologists um, to understand the trends. Um, Dr. Bell, we are very encouraged um, by the information that's being reported out about the efficacy of the vaccines that are in development. What information do you have about the um, delivery and availability of the vaccines that that are coming out on the market and how those will be prioritized for delivery to South Carolinians? Well, um, we are uh, very encouraged about the, uh, the effectiveness of these vaccines. And um, we are expecting to receive the initial doses here in South Carolina probably sometime next week but that will only be in limited supply. Mm -hmm. And so when we've identified the individuals who are at um, highest risk for exposure, when we've identified the, the groups of say healthcare workers who serve in a role to, um, to preserve life, to reduce mortality. And, uh, and we, we already know that even for those groups, frontline healthcare workers, healthcare providers in ambulatory settings, medical first responders, all of those groups that we know that in the initial supply, there won't be enough to, to reach those. So it will be a rolling out. Um, there's a plan in place to get that done as quickly as possible. We have um, working with the, the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on those allocation plans. So they will roll out doses of vaccine based on the supply that's available nationally, based on the population of each state. So we'll get a little bit starting next week. We'll get a little bit more the following weeks. Um, we'll be initially targeting those um, healthcare facilities to allow them to vaccinate the staff within their facilities first to protect the healthcare system because they, they can't keep the rest of us well should they get sick. Right, right. 
And then um, we will include more and more groups who are at high risk for exposure. Uh, the other large group in the initial phase will be those workers and residents in long-term care facilities. And then we'll begin reaching out to those at increased risk for um, severe complications based on underlying health problems that already exist, work setting, uh, people who are um, have a limited ability to um, not be exposed in certain work settings, for example. So that's uh, that's the general plan, and we uh, we we want to provide as much information as we can so that the public is aware of every step, so that they know when it's it's not your turn yet, but it's coming, and we want to encourage everyone to get the vaccine as soon as it's available to them, because that will that is what will get us out of this pandemic. What percentage of the population needs to be vaccinated in order for it to be effective? Well, to be effective in terms of uh, protecting the population as a whole, we're, we're looking to achieve about 70% coverage. Okay. Okay. And that's when we would know that the majority of the population are protected from ongoing exposure. And it wouldn't be until that point that uh, we could we could really safely stop the other very effective prevention measures that are available to all of us, the physical distancing, the masks, the good hygiene. We don't want people to forget that this is a huge opportunity for us to control until about the spring of 2021 when we expect that at the time that there will be um, ample supply of vaccine for, for everybody. Would you mind speaking a little bit about um, what Dara mentioned when I asked her the question, what are clients asking? And she said they're asking, is it safe to take? Mm -hmm. Given your role, could you speak a little bit about that to help inform really all of us? Mm -hmm. About the safety of this vaccine? Yes. 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 Um, you know, one of the things that we're waiting for is the, the FDA approval for the emergency use authorization. And what that means is that as for, um, it's the Food and Drug Administration, every drug released in the United States must go through this rigorous scientific process where the drugs, including vaccines, are tested for their safety and for their effectiveness. And so these COVID-19 vaccines have gone through that identical process that is required by the FDA as for every other vaccine. And so we, we are excited that uh, that the that initial vote from the FDA for the Pfizer vaccine that's available that has reached that approval, and and that means that um, that that body and their group of subject matter experts weighed through all of the evidence that the vaccine manufacturers presented when they tested and took these vaccines through the clinical trials before they would allow them to be used. And so that positive vote means that those scientists have reviewed all of that evidence and that it meets the same criteria for safety and effectiveness as all other vaccines. No changes there. And so, you know, from, from those criteria for safety and effectiveness, these vaccines will have met that standard. Dr. Bell, what are you seeing from the data about the safety um, from public and private schools? of um, providing face-to-face -face instruction for students. Yes, well, <clears throat> I did mention earlier that we track cases in schools and, um, and, and, and just as we track all other cases so that we can identify, counsel, put people in isolation, prevent spread. And um, there, we don't have a lot of evidence of 
ongoing spread in school settings. We have those cases that have been reported. And when we have so many cases in the community, it's, it's difficult to identify where many of these cases were the original source of exposure. So when we don't see, um, well, I'll, I will put it this way. When we see a small number of cases, which is what we're actually capturing for the majority of schools in a setting, and we don't see the cases climbing those settings, that tells us that the measures in schools for the physical distancing, the masks, the, um, the schedules, all the measures that have taken place in many ways are safer than what we have in place in um, other community settings, in, in the bars, in some of the restaurants. So, um, you know, I can say from a public health standpoint, it's our role to advise the schools on the safe measures that they can put in place and for us to do surveillance for cases in schools. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, the measures that, that they have to take if their staff are ill and, and you know, other decisions about face-to-face -face learning is, um, that, that is in another purview for the, for the you know, school administrators, Department of Education, and we work very closely with, with those um, local school districts and the state um, Department of Education. I'll tell you, my kids don't necessarily love the plexiglass dividers in the classroom, but they do like being at school. Um, so they've gotten used to it. Um, and, and the same, you know, with the mask and the, the plexiglass, they've gotten accustomed to it. And you don't see that um, in those other environments that you mentioned. Um, as a public health official, do you have concerns about not having kids in school? What, what are some of the detrimental effects if they're not in that environment? You know, we recognize the benefit of schools for so many services. It's not just the education, which is vitally important, right? right. But um, providing food. Uh, we know that there can be tensions in in the home settings, the strain on parents having to work to provide, you know, to make sure that their children keep up, and and the schools serve as a um, as a, another venue to sort of observe children when they're beginning to have problems, and so those things that could potentially be missing. The counseling in schools um, is is actually part of public health because public health is is not just the prevention of disease transmission. It's not just the absence of disease. It is the presence of healthy communities, and all those contributors to a healthy community include the school systems, businesses, the economy. All of that is part of our concern in public health. So we're not just saying this is what you do to stop the spread of this particular virus. Right. Our goal is to create the opportunity for everybody to have an equitable access to good health. And, and that includes the school systems, it includes the businesses and the economy. So we, we want to get ahead of the disease spread so all of these other activities can normalize for healthy communities. And we, in, in closing up today, we're grateful for the work that you're doing and your team with you. Um, you know, yeah, no, nobody's perfect. You can't please everyone, but, but we're grateful for what you've done these past few months. And, and if you could maybe uh, share some final thoughts on what would you say to companies, individuals, organizations, um, to encourage them to, you know, finish this strong, to, to be well and stay safe and persevere. Um, why would that be important uh, when the, you know, desire to be with families and spread out is also, you know, something from the heart. I think what I would say is that 
is that I recognize the fatigue. Is that this is, you know, these are devastating consequences that have lasted now for going on for 10 and 11 months. But to, um, to give up now would put us in a position of these repeated surges that, that we just can't tolerate, that there are additional avoidable deaths. And in fact, some of the projections that we're looking at is if we, if we don't do something dramatically different, that we stand to see as many deaths occur in the next four months as we have seen in the previous 10 months going forward. And, and, and so what I would encourage people is that, um, I, I guess I've, I have no other example of a highly, of highly effective interventions that are widely available to every single person that are evidence-based in terms of the scientific evidence that has been published about their effectiveness. And, and there's just a, a bit of frustration for any questioning about why would we use masks? So if we understand that we have something that is spread from what comes out of your nose and mouth and that it could kill you, and if you cover your nose and mouth that you could save many, many lives, I, I think I would leave people with the messages that everyone has in their power to save lives. It could be your own life. It could be you know, those in your home setting, but it, as a community, as a whole, this is what we each have the chance to do while we wait on the opportunity of the vaccine and it will come and, and there are just multiple tools available, but we're at a point now where we have to use every single resource that's available to us to bring COVID under control once and for all. Yes. Well, I hope, um, I hope a lot of people listen to you say that many times uh, because that's powerful. If we all have the ability to save a life, why wouldn't we? Dr. Bell, thank you for joining us again. Um, I, you know, one day we're going to have you on here when the topic is clear and we're just going to talk positively about public health. And, um, and all the success. Yes, and, and all the success. But uh, until then, we just ask you to you know, continue to press on, be strong and courageous for us, and keep up the good work. And thank you. Thank you yes. so much. We appreciate you more than you know. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Bell. Dara, as many people in the next four months potentially dying as in the last 10 or 11 months, I mean, that's, that needs to be a headline. That is a staggering possibility. That makes me say, put your mask on, please. Right. <laughs> you know? um, it is amazing when you think about how simple things like mm -hmm. washing your hands, wearing a mask, keeping a social distance can make such a difference that can save a life whether it's yours or someone that you right. care about or even a stranger that you pass on the street these are things that are free and are so simple and it's really not about you know a civil liberty or a constitutional right. freedom this that some people might argue this is about being kind and compassionate to other people and really trying to make a dramatic improvement um, in our community. And so when you hear that kind of potential statistic, I think all of us should feel compelled to do these really small, simple, mm -hmm. inexpensive things um, to make our world better. And um, I'm so very grateful that we have people like Dr. Bell who can educate us about these very simple things. We don't have to be a scientist. We don't have to be an epidemiologist right. or a physician to make a difference. We can be right. an elementary school child 
um, who right. can make a difference. Right. And I hope that 70% vaccination rate comes soon. That's for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. In 2021. Well, thank you for joining us today's edition of Taking the Pulse. It was a very interesting and sobering conversation, but one that we need to hear. Uh, we hope you, you will join us next time on Taking the Pulse.